and welcome to the Iran podcast. I'm Negar Mortazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we take a look at the history of U.S.-Iran relationships, how the two countries went from mutual admiration to very strategic and close ties, and finally to mutual hatred and political animosity in the past four decades. My guest is John Ghazvinian, a historian and the executive director of the Middle East Center at the University of Pennsylvania. John, welcome to the Iran podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for being with me. You recently wrote a book about the history of U.S.-Iran relations in the past two centuries that just came out in the U.K. and it will be out in the U.S. in January. And I encourage everyone to read this book. It's called America and Iran, A History 1720 to the Present. Can you give me a summary of every interesting point you put in your book? Sure, no problem. Um, so look, obviously, uh, you and all of your listeners probably are aware that uh, Iran and America have a very long and complicated history. So, um, you know, it's difficult to do it justice in a couple of minutes. But I think, look, what I was trying to do with this book was uh, bring out the richness uh, and the fascination of this uh, of this history. Because I think too often we treat this history as some sort of competitive sport or some sort of, uh, you know, weapon to, you know, hit, hit our enemies with, uh, whether people are supportive of Iran or supportive of America, or they want to play a blame game. You know, history is not a courtroom drama. It's not about, you know, using history to, to say somebody's right and somebody's wrong and, and to lay blame or to, to make victims and, uh, and enemies. Um, this history is, it's a history of a relationship and like all relationships, like relationships between people. Uh, it's complicated. It's multi-layered. It's nuanced, uh, you know, and it's not just about black and white and good and evil. Uh, and that's what I was really trying to do with this book. And you know, really, what I thought the best way to do that was to move beyond some of the standard talking points that we tend to use. I mean, I, I feel history, like everything else between Iran and America, has been a source of antagonism. You know, we talk about 1953 and 1979. We talk about the CIA support for the coup against Mossadegh in 53, and of course the. Iran hostage crisis in 1979. But, you know, the history is so much richer than that. It goes back so long. And, you know, for the overwhelming majority of that, of that history, um, you know, it is a story of mutual admiration, fascination, and even a sort of mutual idealization. You know, the enmity and, and hostility of the last 40 years is almost like a blip in this history when you look at it uh, over the long term. So that's the kind of big picture of the book. It's interesting that you mentioned that Iran and the U.S. are both powers in their own terms. Once were close allies, but are now adversaries. And this is a relationship that the entire world, at least today, pays attention to. But we don't hear too much about U.S.-Iran relations before the 20th century, at least. Take us to the beginning of this relationship and how it started and developed. Yeah, I mean, what, so what I actually did in the book was something even crazier than that, which is to go to the prehistory, uh, to go for about, I mean, the first actual contact, I mean, just the first American to visit uh, Iranian territory was a guy by the name of Joel Roberts Poinsett, a South Carolina gentleman in 1805 who, who visited Baku, which was then part of, uh, part of Iran. Um, but the first real contact was, of course, American missionaries from 1835, uh, who started going to Iran. But I decided to go back a whole century even before that, because what I was curious about is what 
what is the prehistory? What are the preconceived notions that both of these people have of each other before they ever come into contact? Uh, because I think that ends up informing uh, their first interactions. So I was surprised to learn that in the 1720s, uh, the very first newspapers published in North America, in Philadelphia and in Boston, uh, were absolutely obsessed with Iran. I mean, this blew my mind when I came, when I came wow. across this. Um, something like 25 to 30% of, the, uh, of each week's newspaper sometimes was taken up by Iran. It's almost uh, like today. It's almost like today, except in except what's funny is it's the exact opposite. Because what, one of the things I discovered was, unlike today, um, the Iranian, uh, the American newspapers of the 1720s were rapidly and overwhelmingly pro-Iranian, uh, and this is why they were so interested in Iran. Um, so the reason, you know, that Iran took up so much kind of mental real estate uh, in the 1720s in colonial America was just it was a coincidence. The um, uh, collapse of the Safavid Empire in 1722 uh, and the Afghan uprising in the east, the uh, rebellion of Mahmoud Hotaki, uh, happened to be the big news story of the day when Americans first started publishing newspapers. But that doesn't explain why they're so pro-Iranian. I mean, they were cheering on the Shah. They were they they referred to the Afghans as usurpers and 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 evil and all the rest of it. And the 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 Safavids, the Iranians, they were the good guys in this story. What is that about? Um, very simply, uh, it's a number of different things. One is that they believed that there was some kind of collusion. I mean, it was actually very funny because the Ottoman Empire of the day was like Russia today. I mean, it was everything was blamed on the Ottomans. They were the evil Turk, the 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 the, the barbarous Turk, the, the terrible Turk. You know, this was the 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 language that they had inherited from the British and from Europeans. Because remember, Americans, white Americans in Philadelphia and Boston in 1720 would have seen, them, seen themselves as basically British. Mm -hmm. uh, and for Europeans, you know, the Ottomans were the evil empire of the day. Uh, and they believed that the Ottomans were colluding with the Afghans secretly. They actually weren't. This is just wrong. But they, they assumed that, that because the Afghans were Sunni and they were rebelling against the Shia uh, Persian Empire, that they must have been getting secret uh, help from the Ottomans. And it was the old principle of my, my enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, the, the Persians had a long-standing standing rivalry with the Ottomans, uh, and so they thought the Persians were the good guys in this story uh, and the victims of kind of Ottoman you know, deviousness. But it was even more than just that. Uh, there was also a religious dimension to it, right? The, uh, especially the Puritans of New England were very steeped in a biblical understanding of the world. Mm -hmm. So when they wanted to understand the Middle East, they looked at the Bible. And in the Bible, uh, Iran looks good, uh, right? Cyrus, uh, you know, in Ezra book one, Cyrus frees the Jews from the Babylonian captivity. Mm -hmm. So he's kind of a good guy. Uh, the Magi, the three wise men from the East. We forget that what is a Magus? Magi is plural of Magus, which is a Mog or a Zoroastrian priest, mm -hmm. right? Um, they're Iranians. We forget this. Uh, you know, the, the, the three wise men were actually you know, from the East. They were from Iran. Uh, so Iran looks good in the Bible. Persia looks good in the Bible. Babylon very much is evil. And the Ottomans were seen as the heirs of Babylon. Um, so I know this is a very long-winded answer, but I just wanted to say, look, this is the kind of uh, psychic baggage, if you like, psychological baggage that Americans approached Iran with even before they had any contact. Now let's talk about the beginning of the U.S.-Iran relationship in the 1850s, mm -hmm. as you said, and how that relationship developed 
And then we can talk about the 20th century and the close ties between Iran and the U.S. But let's hear about how it first started. Sure. Well, as I said, so the first, uh, you know, sort of human contact was from the 1830s when American Presbyterian missionaries began to settle in around Urumia in northwestern Iran. Um, but the first diplomatic contact, political contact, uh, took place in the 1850s, about 15, 20 years after that. Um, there was a treaty signed between Iran and America, a treaty of friendship that was finally it was negotiated in 1851 and not, not actually ratified by the U.S. Senate uh, until 1856 and signed in 1857, formalized. Why did it take so long? Why did it take five or six years? This is super interesting. This is the first disagreement, the first dispute between Iran and America. And what's fascinating about it is the nature of the dispute was that Iran wanted the U.S. to become more involved in its affairs, mm. and the U.S. wanted to not get involved in Iranian <laughs> affairs. It's an incredible irony when we look, for, you know, how do we get from there to here, right? Mm -hmm. But the, the dispute was this. Basically, the Iranians were very concerned about British and Russian interference in their affairs and wanted to cultivate the, the U.S. as a kind of third force. Uh, and they wanted to send a message, especially to the British in the Persian Gulf, because the British were very dominant in the, in the Gulf waters. The Shah's government requested from the U.S. Uh, that the U.S. re-flag Iranian shipping in the Gulf with the Stars and Stripes. Wow. Uh, they basically wanted uh, American protection for Persian shipping in the Persian Gulf mm -hmm. to send a message to Britain that these were protected by the U.S. Obviously, the U.S. response, no, we don't want to get involved in this kind of thing. You know, we don't want to get involved in entangling alliances. But that is remarkable. It's only been 150, 170 years, right? But how do we get from there to here, from a point where Iran wanted the U.S. more and more involved in its affairs and the U.S. just said, look, we don't want to interfere in what you're doing. Mm -hmm. That's where it begins. Okay, now I don't want to fast forward too quickly. So let's hear more interesting highlights that you found in sure. the pre-modern history era between Iran and the U.S. and before they became close allies, as we've mostly heard about it today. Sure. I mean, there's a lot that I could talk about. I, I love this period, actually. I think it's really understudied and underappreciated. But actually, well, here's what I would say in general. Part of why I wanted to study the long history was because almost every, well, every uh, history of U.S.-Iran relations that's been written by an American historian has been has started usually in the 1940s. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because before that, the U.S. was simply not interested in Iran. Iran might as well have been Antarctica as far as the State Department was concerned. Mm -hmm. So I understand that instinct. Um, but I think that's a real problem because basically what that communicates, uh, you know, in, in sort of in, in, intrinsically is that the history of U.S. and Iran relations only becomes important when the U.S. becomes interested. I think that's a very problematic way of looking at it, right? Mm -hmm. Um for at least 80 years before that, from the 1850s right through to the 1940, Iranian governments, successive Iranian governments, both, both Qajar and early Pahlavi, were very interested in cultivating closer relations with the U.S. That story is just as important. Uh, and I think it's a shame to leave that out. Uh, and I think it's, that's what, you know, I think uh, comes across is it's not just about, you know, uh, looking at this from the U.S. perspective. You know, I used a lot of Iranian sources. I went to Iran three times to do archival research for this. And that's the story that came out of this. You know, the, the Morgan Schuster episode, which a lot of people are familiar with, when, uh, you know, Iran employed a, a, an American treasurer to uh, reorganize its finances, and he ended up becoming extremely sympathetic to the constitutional revolution. 
uh, and standing up to Russia uh, and eventually, you know, became a sort of hero to Iranian nationalists. Uh, the moment, there's an incredible moment in 1919, right after the First World War, when Iran had been devastated by the war, even though it was a neutral country, mm-hmm. and it wanted a seat at the table at Versailles at the peace conference. And the British refused, and this really upset the Wilson administration, and they publicly criticized Britain for this. And this became the, the, the source of great admiration uh, in Iran for the U.S. There were even reports of pro-American riots on the streets of Tehran in 1919. Um, so there's a really rich history. And I know, we, we I, obviously, I'm happy to get to the more recent history, but here's what I would say. You know, Mossadegh grew up in this era, and we forget that. You know, he was a child of the Constitutional Revolution. He was a young... Uh, political, a very active political, uh, you know, um, um, participant around the time of Morgan Schuster and the 1919 Versailles, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, situation. So, you know, he was always very pro-American, actually. Like, if you look at his, some of his speeches, even when he was uh, railing against Millspore in the, in the Majlis in the 1940s, he would say, you know, I'm sure Americans wouldn't want to be represented by someone like this, you know. Uh, they're such good people, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is the atmosphere of real warmth and mutual uh, admiration that existed right up until 1953. And let's linger a little more here before we get to the 1953 coup. <laughs> As you were saying, most of what we know about U.S.-Iran relations are from after the 1940s. Uh, so tell us how the relationship led to that period and basically how America became so interested in Iran. Yeah, this is the thing, right? So I think most of us who know something about this history are aware of the fact that things changed dramatically in 1953. Uh, obviously, it took a much took a very different turn. Um, and I think there's some awareness that there was a very positive relationship that was somehow lost after 1953. Uh, but I think we forget where did that come from in the first place. You know, I think as historians of U.S.-Iran relations, we're often called upon to explain how everything went wrong. Mm -hmm. But I think inherent in that question is, well, how did things go right in the first place, Mm -hmm. right? We never ask that question. We just want to talk about how everything went wrong. And and what's implied by that question is, whose fault is it? Mm -hmm. And I think this is a really bad way to look at history, because as I said at the beginning, that's not what history is about. It's, you know, it's easy to say, oh, well, the U.S. was, you know, to blame because of 1953, they started it, or to to blame Iran for the hostage crisis, or, you know, I I want to step away from all of that. You know, how did the U.S. and Iran become such, you know, warm allies in the first place, right? Uh, you know, before 1953, right up until 1953, you know, there was such mutual admiration. You know, one of the things I'm struck by, for example, in the summer of 1951, when during the oil nationalization crisis, when communists and nationalists and royalists were tearing each other's posters off the walls and getting into fistfights on the streets of Tehran, word reached Iran that Samuel Jordan had died. Uh, you know, the uh, Presbyterian missionary who for more than 40 years had been the principal of Al-Bor's school in Tehran and a beloved figure in Iran. Tehran came to a standstill in the middle of this uh, as thousands of mourners walked through the streets to memorialize Jordan. And of course, as you know, uh, uh, one of the major streets in Tehran was named after him, Jordan, which mm-hmm. many people still call Jordan, call Jordan. you know, mm-hmm. it's now Africa. Um, but, you know, this is, um, you know, this is the atmosphere that, you know, that existed before the coup. Bakhtara Emruz, which is a, was a nationalist newspaper uh, that really supported Mossadegh in the early 1950s. 
One of the things that really struck me when I was reading Bakhtar Emruz was when they would criticize the U.S., and they would. When they criticized it, the, the language was always almost one of heartbreak and disappointment. Mm. It wasn't one of anger. The anger they reserved for the British. <laughs> they were very <laughs> negative about the British. But when they talked about the U.S., when the U.S. did something they didn't like, uh, they, or the U.S. wasn't supporting Mossadegh enough, they would say, you know, this is, you know, maybe this is because of America's inexperience. You know, they're, they're new to this, you know, world leadership. You know, they're, maybe they're being misled by the British. You know, look at their long history of the Monroe Doctrine or, the, you know, Mark Twain or, you know, all these things. And, you know, let's, let's talk about this is a, a country that has a long history of, uh, of anti-imperialism. It's not it's out of character for them to be acting like this. They were disappointed. They were almost hurt more than they were angry. Um, you know, and I think that's pretty striking. When you talk about this mutual admiration, tell me more about what they saw in each other, Iran and the U.S. What were the similarities that existed and what were the differences that each side recognized that led to the admiration of the other? Yeah, so actually my first chapter is called East of Eden. And the reason for that is I start with the biblical ideas and you know, going back to where we started this conversation. You know, when this is why I think it's important to look at what did Americans think even before Presbyterian missionaries started going to Iran. Mm-hmm. They largely were, um, you know, Protestant Christians and, you know, what they were very informed by the Bible. And to them, uh, they literally believed that Iran was just east of Eden. Uh, the reason they didn't like the Ottoman Empire, not just because they were invading Europe and so on, but also because, remember, the Ottomans were in uh, control of all of the biblical territories, mm-hmm. uh, the Holy Land, uh, and, you know, the place, places where Jesus walked, you know, had been, as they saw it, uh, defiled and spoiled and ruined by these evil Muslim Ottomans, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but just slightly to the east of the Ottoman Empire lay this mythical kingdom, this, this ideal Eastern kingdom that was seen as somehow less Muslim, less evil. Um, and, and the fact that they were Shia played into that because they, they were aware of the fact that, you know, oh, the Ottomans, the, the Sunnis didn't regard the Persians as true Muslims. And so that made them actually even more appealing to Americans. Uh, they're not even real Muslims. They're, you know, they're heretics. You know, that's a good thing. Um, you know, they even literally believed that the Garden of Eden was somewhere around Mosul. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so they believed that, that Persia, that Iran was literally just on the other side. And it was this paradise, you know, this kind of uh, you know, oriental kingdom, this kind of, you know, mystical kingdom that was harmless. That mentality, I think, carries on right up until, amazingly, right up until the Iranian revolution. I think that informs, it's an orientalist way of looking at Iran. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, in some ways, it's probably better than what replaced it. You know, uh, you know, there, there was this idealization uh, of Iran as this kind of, you know, exotic Persian kingdom that was that was harmless, that was less evil. Um, you know, it's not a perfect. Obviously, it's a very idealized way of looking at Iran. Mm-hmm. But I think Iran had its own version of that, which was in the 19th century, as many of your listeners will know, that during the Qajar uh, period, the British and the Russians gradually um, uh, pushed Iran to greater cycles of indebtedness uh, to Russian and British banks uh, and concessions agreements and the Reuter concession, all these kinds of things. But Iran became more and more dependent on British and Russian imperial designs. So the U.S. seemed like a more idealized version of the West 
it's almost an exact parallel. It's almost like a West of Eden, if you like. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the reason that the Iranians became interested in the U.S. was because they liked, they recognized. I mean, Amir Kabir in the 1850s recognized that Iran was a declining power and that, and that the, 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 the West, that the European powers were progressing economically, industrially, militarily, that Iran had a lot to learn from the West, but they didn't want, they didn't like the arrogant, imperialistic attitude of the British and the Russians. They, they wanted to learn from the West, but not at the losing end of a gun barrel. And this is why they liked the U.S. The U.S. seemed to them to be like a nicer version of the Europeans. Um, you know, it was also progressing economically, industrially and militarily, but it was not imperialistic. Uh, it had just it had come to power, the, you know, at a revolution. They, the U.S. had had a revolution against the British themselves. So the Iranians liked that uh, and they wanted to cultivate the U.S. as this kind of third force. Uh, to balance out uh, Russia and Britain. So in a way, both of these countries, you know, looked at each other in a similar way. You know, Iran looked at the U.S. as a nicer version of the West, and the U.S. looked at Iran as a nicer version of the East. You know, less Muslim, less Arab, less Turkish, uh, less Ottoman, uh, while Iran looked at the U.S. as somehow less imperialistic. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's the kind of the big picture. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. And I think people tend to forget about some of these parallels, how Iran and the U.S. are both post-revolutionary societies aspiring to be a power and somewhat exceptional in their own terms. Now, I saw another Iranian-American author, Human Majd, say about your book that you show us when, where, and why things went wrong between Iran and the U.S. And you answer the question of, why do they hate us? So let's talk about how we got here from a place of mutual admiration to a place of mutual hatred. Yes. Um, so I think this is history that is more familiar uh, to your listeners. Mm -hmm. So I won't you know, belabor it too much. But yes, obviously, after 1953, when the CIA gave support to a coup overthrew uh, Mohammad Mossadegh, who was a very popular prime minister, uh, uh, that definitely soured uh, the impression of uh, the United States in the minds of particularly the emerging modern middle classes, uh, educated and um, sort of um, urban middle classes of Iran. Uh, they never quite forgave the U.S. for that and never really stopped seeing the Shah, uh, rightly or wrongly, as a, some sort of American puppet. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't think that's an entirely accurate way of looking at it initially, especially for the 1950s and 1960s. Um, Uh, but, uh, you know, obviously it's a complex picture, but, you know, the Shah's drift towards dictatorship took place gradually. Uh, and there were moments where the U.S. tried to push him to liberalize and reform, particularly during the Kennedy period. Uh, but ultimately, the Shah's instincts were largely autocratic, and that became more and more apparent as time went on. Uh, and of course, when the British uh, evacuated all of their positions east of the Suez after 1971, the U.S. really needed Uh, an ally in the in the region, and Iran was a very logical ally. Uh, of course, uh, the Shah was very uh, anti-communist, and so you know Nixon appreciated uh, the Nixon administration appreciated his uh, position, and um, and of course Nixon and the Shah had developed a friendship dating back to the 1954 when they had first met. Uh, they really liked each other. They really admired each other, um, and so after 1972, the U.S. basically gave Iran a sort of blank check to. Uh, purchased as much weaponry as it wanted from the Pentagon, and it did. Iran became far and away the largest purchaser of uh, U.S. Uh, military uh, equipment in the 1970s. Um, and, you know, that was a 
you know, not a great look uh, for the Shah ultimately, as he became more and more unpopular and more and more repressive uh, to um, connect his regime much more closely to the United States. Because, of course, as the Shah went down, he sort of took the U.S. down with him uh, in Iran. When we look at today's animosity between the two sides, what you hear most from the American side is the hostage crisis. And on the Iranian side, it's probably the 1953 coup, at least for many Iranians. Do you think these two major events are what led to the two sides to where they are today of this mutual hatred? I mean, I think when you look at it historically, sure. But I actually feel very strongly that we that history, rather than imprisoning us uh, in these uh, in these kind of cycles of mutual recrimination and accusation, mm-hmm. history could actually liberate us from that. Mm-hmm. Um, this was uh, the kind of message I wanted to send with this book is, yes, 1953 and 1979, or uh, the CIA coup and the hostage crisis in 79 are extremely important turning points, of course, of course. Um, but the larger history, when you get beyond these episodes, uh, the overwhelming majority of the history these two countries have had with each other is one of mutual admiration and idealization. The last 40 years has been, you know, I don't want to say an aberration uh, because it's a lot has happened in 40 years. But, you know, it, it's not it doesn't you know, it's only a small part of the history. Uh, and I think we can go back, uh, you know, not easily, but we can go back to it. It's possible to go back to a time when these countries have a have a more respectful uh, engagement with each other. I don't actually, I'm not one of these people who believes that the hostage crisis, the 79 hostage crisis and the 53 coup are somehow to blame for the fact that today in 2020, the US and Iran are uh, so hostile to each other. I mean, countries, international relations doesn't work that way. People are able to get beyond history if they want to get beyond history. You know, it's not like people are sitting there in the State Department or in the foreign ministry in Tehran saying, you know, this would actually be fine if only they would just apologize for what they did, you know, 40 years ago or, you know, 65 years ago. That's not how it works. I mean, you know, since 1979, you know, has accumulated, you know, one problem after another has just accumulated layer after layer after layer. Uh, and those are the things that we really have to address. You know, each country's actual, current, present day grievances with each other. Uh, and then, you, yeah, you can talk about history. You know, that will inevitably come into the conversation. But it doesn't, history doesn't have to imprison us. Mm-hmm. We are at a turning point right now. The U.S. just had a presidential election. The Trump administration is outgoing. The Biden administration is incoming. We hear a promise of re-engagement with Iran, of restarting diplomacy and moving towards a path to de-escalate tensions and to reduce this animosity. What do you think about the path forward and how the history of the U.S. and Iran is going to impact this upcoming future? Um, I mean, I'll be very honest and say I'm not very optimistic. I think it's very difficult to be optimistic about U.S.-Iran relations today. And, And frankly, if you've spent the last, as I have, the last 12 years of your life uh, deeply immersed in uh, the history of this relationship, it's you become even more pessimistic, um, despite the kind of positive tone I want to try to set in the book. Um, the fact is we are at a really at a historic low point now. Um, you know, I, I think other than other than the, the hostage crisis, I can't think of another time when U.S.-Iran relations have been this bad. Mm-hmm. Um, I am not wildly optimistic about a Biden administration. Um, I may be surprised. Um, I may be pleasantly surprised, but... Um, I think if there is 
reason for optimism. It's that a lot of the people that Biden will have around him um, will probably be people who have worked on the JCPOA and who maybe feel very personally invested in it. Uh, and in at least, if not resurrecting it, resur- you know, moving towards resurrecting it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope that's the case. However, there are also just certain realities. Uh, of course, Iran has a presidential election coming up in, um, what, eight months or so? Um, really, f- five months after Biden takes office. So that is, and as we know, Rouhani is, uh, President Rouhani is, t- is term limited. He will not be able to run. It's the end of his second term. And let's just be honest, I think we are likely to see a hard line turn in Iranian politics at this, uh, this election, um, simply because of the U.S. withdrawal from the JCPOA running on a on a platform of better relations with the U.S. is not likely to be a, a vote winning strategy in, in, a, in an Iranian election this year, mm-hmm. I don't think. So I think the Biden administration knows that it has a very, very limited uh, window uh, of just a few months to see what they can do. Uh, with uh, the Rouhani administration before he leaves office, I it seems it seems to me unrealistic to expect a quick sudden return to the JCPOA, um, but maybe there could be some sort of JCPOA light uh, version where there is some you know sanctions relief uh, in exchange for some return to compliance with some of the terms of the JCPOA. I think that's probably the best we can hope for. Mm-hmm. I know historians prefer to explain what's already happened in the past than be forced to predict the future. So let me ask you about the past. You mentioned the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal. How did you see those years, the nuclear negotiations that led to an agreement that was truly historic for many of us observing after decades of animosity that Iran and the U.S. were finally able to sit down and talk and agree on something. I have a fairly unconventional um, interpretation of that entire episode. Of course, I agree with you. It was wonderful. Anytime Iran and the U.S. are talking and coming to agreements and having constructive dialogue. Um, But I think it was largely irrelevant and unnecessary. It was a distraction from the the bigger issues, uh, which is that, you know, that whole, that whole, Negotiation and agreement took place against the backdrop of mutual, you know, mutual distrust, um, and we, we were both countries were able to get beyond that, which was great. But as we can see, unless you address the full range of issues between the two countries, unless you actually work to establish genuine rapprochement, détente, uh, you know, diplomatic openness and relations between the two countries, it, you know, coming to an agreement over one specific issue is never going to really work. And we've seen that. We've seen that it didn't stick, you know, because it's just too easy for another administration to come in and change everything. You know, you can't just have an agreement. You know, it's like when you have two people who hate each other, you know, trying to come up with some kind of, uh, you know, agreement over some very specific issue when really what they want to talk about is why they hate each other. Uh, And that's what we have to get to. Um, And I think Obama actually genuinely wanted to have a much broader uh, reset of the relationship Mm -hmm. with Iran. But I think he ran into, uh, frankly, very, very strong opposition from the Israelis. Uh, that made it very difficult. I mean, uh, and the Israelis, as I try to argue in my book, um, were not really worried about the idea of Iran building a nuclear weapon because they knew better than anyone that Iran actually had no real interest in a nuclear weapon. Uh, it was what, what Israel has always been afraid of. And the Gulf Arab states and Saudi Arabia have, have always been afraid of is not some idea of an Iranian nuclear bomb. To them, the real nuclear bomb is the idea of the U.S. and Iran having better relations. Mm-hmm. That is what they're worried about. 
because that, of course, reduces their own importance in uh, in terms of their relationship with Washington. Um, you know, so, you know, I don't want to oversimplify. You know, obviously there were plenty of other uh, factors, but I mean, you know, that kind of ingrained opposition is what Obama ran into. And Netanyahu was very uh, successful uh, at running out the clock on Obama, making sure that the um, nuclear negotiations became so difficult and took place against such a backdrop of drama and uh, and kind of um, hysteria about, you know, uh, we don't have any more time, you know, Iran is a couple months away from a bomb, you know, all this kind of stuff that made it so difficult uh, that it took seven years before Obama uh, was able to finally negotiate agreement. And by that point, you know, he was out of time. He only had one more year in office. There was no more energy and time to really use that to pivot to a much deeper and broader and better relationship with Iran, which is a shame. Mm -hmm. And finally, I want to go back to the mutual admiration because we talked about the animosity and the tensions, the decades-long political fight. But I think the admiration still exists to some extent, at least on the Iranian side. What do you think? How much of this admiration for the U.S. do you think still exists in Iran? And does this make you optimistic at all that the long winter of animosity between Iran and the U.S. will one day end? Yeah, I mean, this is what's interesting, right? I mean, I think that probably like every country, like almost every country in the world, um, Iran over the last four years, uh, you know, I think that the popularity of the United States in Iran has probably declined a little bit in the last four years. Um, but I think, but ironically, Iran still remains, I think, probably one of the, in terms of its population and its people, probably one of the most pro-American countries uh, in the Middle East, if not in the world. Um, its population, ironically, is actually, you know, I wouldn't say overwhelmingly pro-American. Of course, there are plenty of people who, who don't like America, but uh, there are quite a lot who do. Um, you know, but as we know, that, that only goes so far. I mean, you, you, that doesn't, you know, that... Uh, you know, Iranians, even the Iranian government, especially on the reformist side, are, you know, even, you know, some of the more moderate and reformist figures are very quick to say we have no argument with the American people or with American culture. America is a great country. I mean, Khatami said that many times, you know. Um, you know, it's the policies that we have issues with. And 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 the the U.S. government says the same thing. I mean, you know, they, they love to make these videos about, you know, Cyrus and all this kind of stuff and, you know, Persian culture and so, you know, that uh, it's being repressed by the Islamic Republic and so on. So it's the political, ultimately, it's those political issues that are going to have to be transcended. Um, you know, I think that, you know, everything else will unfold from there. Um, you know, I don't, you know, but I think that obviously we have to start with, the, with getting past some of the political differences. John, thank you for joining the Iran podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. That was John Ghazvinian, Executive Director of the Middle East Center at University of Pennsylvania, joining me from Philadelphia. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the Iran Podcast on your podcast apps and follow on Twitter at Iran Podcast. You can also sponsor the podcast by going on the website and clicking on support. Until next time, goodbye.